Hey everybody, welcome to another Ithaca Bound podcast episode. I'm your host, Andrew Schiestel, and this is the podcast where we explore history and mythology in the Mediterranean Basin. Today, Dr. Catherine Lomas joins the show again. On May 6th, 2021, an episode was published where Dr. Lomas joined the show and we had a conversation about the First Punic War. Today, Dr. Lomas is back on the show and we're going to have a conversation about uh, after the First Punic War, from more so from Carthage, Carthage's perspective. So we're going to have a conversation about Carthage after the First Punic War. Dr. Lomas is an honorary research fellow in the Department of Classics and Ancient History at Durham University based in the UK. She has written many publications over her career, including a couple books as examples. The Rise of Rome, 1000 BC to 264 BC, which was published by Harvard University Press in North America and Profile Books in the UK. And the second one, Rome and the Western Greeks, 350 BC to AD 200, Conquest and Acculturation in Southern Italy, which was published by Routledge. Welcome back on the show, Catherine. Hi, good to be back. Nice to see you again. So to start with, Catherine, we chatted last about the First Punic War. Can we? Can you start with uh, summarizing what, uh, how that First Punic War started in more of a summary way, because we had a whole episode on it and how it uh, wrapped up? Okay. Um, yeah, it was basically a conflict between Rome and Carthage, which was fought principally in Sicily. Um, the western part of Sicily was a, was a Carthaginian dependency at that stage. Um, and effectively, the First Punic War was a, was a, was a struggle between Rome and Carthage for, for domination of, of, of that territory. Um, and obviously, Carthage lost. Um, and at the end of the war, Rome impu- imposed quite a punitive peace settlement on Carthage, uh, which include, included um, Carthage having to cede all its territories in Sicily um, and also pay Rome quite substantial reparations, um, uh, around about three, uh, 3,200 silver talents, which is, you know, about, it's, 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 a, it's, a, it's, a, it's upwards of half a million pounds in today's money. Um, so that was basically that's basically where we were at in two, in, in, in 241. Uh, Sicily is having uh, Carthage is having to leave Sicily um, completely. Um, that then becomes uh, western part of Sicily becomes Rome's, Rome's first overseas province, um, uh, and then. Uh, obviously, Carthage is very much on the back foot. It's had huge reputational damage to its reputation as a military and commercial power, uh, and it's also got the problem got, got the problem of having to ship it, all its army back from uh, uh, Sicily and, and and then try and try and rebuild itself um, in the the post war period, um, and that that really causes some of the problems that uh, he said you'd quite like me to talk about today. What year did the first Punic War start? And what year did it end? Uh, well, it was 264 uh, that it really started, uh, although there was a couple of years when nothing much happened at the beginning, but technically it's 264 to 241, uh, which was the year it ended. Um, and then you have a, an interwar period between, between 241 and 218, which is when the, the second war, the, the Hannibalic War, breaks out. Can you describe, you mentioned... Um... Sicily, can you describe geographically what Carthage's uh, territories 
would have been demarcated to at the start of the First Punic War. And then after the settlement, when the First Punic War ended, how, how that would have changed. If someone's looking at a map, what their, what the, geographically, what their territories would be de- demarcated to then. Yeah, well, in Sicily, it effectively controlled the western portion of the island. Uh, so it was the area around what's now Palermo, um, uh, Marsala, and Trapani on the, the the western corner of the corner of the island. Um, but it also controlled Sardinia and Corsica. Um, it was very much a, a commercial power, so so it controlled a lot of the western Mediterranean islands, um, and it had a foothold on the east coast of Spain because the. Carthage, so Carthage was actually founded by the Phoenician peoples from the eastern Mediterranean, um, who also set up colonies along the along the eastern coast of Spain, which then became Carthaginian independencies. Um, in North Africa itself, um, what it effectively controlled was obviously its own territory um, and a number of uh, small Phoenician colonies further down the coast, places like Utica and Tunis, uh, modern Tunis. Tunis. Um, but it also, uh, by the end of by, by the end of the fourth century, it controlled uh, Libya um, as well. So it had this hinterland, which was uh, effectively a dependency. Um, uh, not an, it wasn't urbanised. It was quite it was an area of small settlements, which was quite agriculturally rich, um, and it seems to have been uh, inhabited by this stage by a mixture of indigenous Libyans and Carthaginian colonists. Um, and we know that it was divided into administrative and tax districts, so it's obviously under quite a lot of direct control by Carthage. Um, uh, tax rates were said to be quite punitive, uh, which was a matter of something that caused quite a lot of un- un- unrest at various points. Um, and um, Libyans seem to have fought as conscripts in the Carthaginian army. So it, ha- it has this hinterland, which isn't actually ethnically Carthaginian, but it but is dominated by Carthage. Uh, and it also has a close alliance um, with the Numidians who live further to the west, um, uh, which was, they, they were rural, largely nomadic. Um, they served as allies in the Carthaginian army rather than conscripts. Um, uh, Carthage itself, it might be worth saying, is it's, it was basically a city-state, uh, very much like Rome or any other city-states of, of that date. Uh, it seems to have been ruled by a wealthy elite. Um, we, there was a council called the Adirim, which was a, a, effectively the Carthaginian equivalent of the Roman Senate, um, and elected magistrates called Sufites. Um, as far as we can tell, the, the details of politi- Carthaginian politics in the 4th and 3rd centuries are a bit murky but their politics seems to have been really quite volatile uh, with leading families really vying amongst themselves for, for power um and the two main figures that might might be worth mentioning up front because they, they feature quite a lot uh, in this period are hanno who was a general in the early 48 uh, 240s um 248 to 7 um, and Hamilcar, uh, who was the main hero of the, the later stages of the, of the war, and the, the general who, um, you know, sort of was Carthage's leading general. Um, and they were initially political allies, but they seem to have had a really big fallout. So the, the, there's a, an element of political rivalry going on in the background to a lot of what we'll be talking about later on today. Um, uh, but the outcome of this... Um, which is perhaps looking a bit further forward, is that Hamilcar eventually uh, prevails and he, he really establishes himself 
uh, as very much in the ascendant, um, that his family, the Barkid family, become very much the dominant political force at, at Carthage during this period. Um, so basically, at the end of the war, what we've got is a situation where Carthage has been uh, lost all, the, all its territory in Sicily and all the revenue that comes from that, um, uh, and is really paired back to its North African heartlands, plus a, a foothold on, uh, on Sardinia and, and Corsica still. Whose territory was Sardinia and Corsica at the end of the First Punic War? Um, That was still largely controlled by Carthage, uh, although it did actually lose um, control of that to Rome uh, in uh, uh, 237. So one of the fallouts of the the war is that Rome continues to expand on the Mediterranean islands uh, and to push back against Carthage over the immediate interwar period. So on that on that point, um, because that would have been in the interwar period, period um, two thirty seven. So, how, how much details are known about the um, would scholars call it a peace treaty? What would you call this when we're talking about the terms of what would you call that? Uh, that's yeah, it was a peace treaty. It was it's known as a lotation treaty because it was negotiated by a guy called uh, on the Roman side by a guy called Lutatius. Uh, so we do know a fair amount of detail about the treaty. We know that Carthage had to agree to uh, not to ally with any of Rome's allies. Um, there were limits on where where Rome and Carthage could trade, so that they, they would obviously attempts to demarcate their, their areas of influence. Um, um, and of course, that really pushed Carthage out of not not uh, out of Italy because all of Italy was allied with Rome by this stage, um, and uh, Rome was also building up alliances in Sicily. Um, Syracuse, the most powerful city in Greek Sicily, was a Roman ally by this by this stage. So eff- effectively, it's 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 underlying the fact that Carthage doesn't really have much of a foothold in. Um, you know, mainland Italy and, and, and Sicily at this stage. Um, and then we also know that, they, that there is this war indemnity which is imposed, which is quite hefty. Rome annexing um, Corsica and Sardinia. Do scholars know if that was a violation of the, of the treaty at all? Um, well, that actually is um, a sort of second, uh, a sort of add-on to what's really the main traumatic event of the immediate post-war period for Carthage, which uh, was a relatively short, um, last three years, uh, but incredibly bitter and vicious civil war, um, and the uh, Rome managing to grab control of, of Corsica and Sardinia was, was really to do with that. Um, uh, so it might be easier to, if I, I mean, if, you, if you're happy with this, it might Let's be easier there. if I explain about the mercenary war first, and then come mm-hmm. back to Corsica and Sardinia, mm-hmm. if that would please. make sense. Yes, Catherine, please. Um, yeah, it was, um, basically what happened was that um, because um, Carthage had to sort of ship all its troops out, uh, out of um, Sicily, uh, Hamilcar, who was still general at that stage, although he was about to stand down, um, decided that the Libyan conscripts and also the mercenaries, because uh, the Carthaginian army employed quite a lot of mercenaries, uh, should be sent back to Carthage in in, in batches. They, you didn't want to ship them all back at back at back at, back at one go because there's about twenty thousand of them. Um, 
And what he was planning, what he, what he thought would happen was that he would ship them back in several stages and the Carthaginian government would pay off the arrears of pay and disband them so that they wouldn't be hanging around to cause trouble. Um, and in fact, the uh, Carthaginian government under Hanno uh, didn't do this. What, what happened was that they just allowed all the mercenaries to gather in a place called Sicca, which is about 200 kilometres inland, uh, and then they refused to pay up. Which is, you know, a really pretty stupid idea because, of course, the mercenaries just went crazy about this. Um, and um, Hanno tried to bargain down the amount of money that they he, he owed to the troops. Um, and in fact, Super have almost reached an agreement. And at that point, uh, for reasons which we don't don't really know, um, the army uh, took a, a very radical turn. It, uh, the troops murdered their leaders and appointed three more radical people in in their steads, uh, who Polybius says were uh, a Libyan called Mathos, um, a Gaul called Autoritas, and a guy called Spendius, who was in fact an Italian from Campania, a Roman deserter, uh, which I I think is quite interesting because it gives you a flavour of just how ethnically diverse the Carthaginian army was. Um, um, But this lot were much more radical, and they took the whole force up to Tunis, which is really quite close to Carthage, um, and uh, decide, uh, and, and that was really what triggers the the, the war, um, which was incredibly bloodthirsty. Um, I mean, Polybius has a really long descri- description of this, uh, and there were, you know, mighty atrocities on both sides, and, and it was incredibly vicious. Um, so basically, where where we were at in by two forty is that uh, Carthage is. Basically, the Carthaginian army is basically paired back to, to, to its small core of Carthaginian troops. Uh, it's under the control of Hanno, who isn't really much good as a general. Um, and Carthage is besieged by this mercenary force. Um, and in desperation, the Carthaginians reappoint Hamilcar as their, their main military commander. And he manages to create enough space to you know, start, start, start reasserting Carthaginian control. Um, he also reasserts the alliance with the Numidians and, and actually marries one of his daughters to a Numidian prince to try and stop them revolting as well. Um, but basically, um, you know, in, by 239, Carthage is still under siege. Um, the neighbouring cities of Utica and Hippacra have jumped, jumped ship and joined the mercenaries and changed sides. Uh, and Hanno and Hamilcar are sort of completely at daggers drawn. Um, slightly, slightly bizarrely at this point, the Carthaginian government actually asked the troops to decide who was in charge, which is a bit, a bit strange. Um, and thankfully, they opted for Hamilcar, who was much better general of the two. Um, and then from that, on, then at that, that point on, they start managing to, to push back against this. Um, so Hamilcar gradually pushes the rebel army back into the, or most of it, into the Libyan mountains, uh, where he starts it, starts it into submission, uh, and once it offers to surrender, says no, and wipes out the lot, and you know, crucifies lots of captives, and you know it all gets really nasty. Um, the problem with this is that the Libyan section, that, that's the Gallic and the Italian mercenaries, uh, but the Libyan army is, is actually still encamped at Tunes on the other side of Carthage, um, and they. Um, inflicted defeat on the Carthaginians, crucified lots of captives, all gets even nastier. Um, and it's really only in, in 238 when uh, 
somehow somebody manages to bang heads together in Carthage and gets Hamilcar and Hanno to cooperate, uh, that they're able to uh, crush the army belonging to Mathos, the Libyan commander, um, and um, reimpose order on Libya. I'm afraid we don't know what that order consists of because we don't know anything about the terms of the settlement. Um, but it's a very short and very bloody, but a very, very nasty episode, which really is quite an existential threat to Carthage. Um, and the business with Sardig, Corsica and Sardinia, it really goes back to that, because in 239, um, a group of mercenaries which were employed by Carthage are, uh, who were stationed on Sardinia and Corsica revolted in, in support of their counterparts in Libya um, and slaughtered the Carthaginian troops there. Um, and Carthage sent an army to, to really root out these rebels. Um, but two years later, Rome sort of twigged that this was actually a breach of the treaty and said, aha, you're breaching the treaty, can't be having that, um, and forced Carthage to cede control of the, the two islands um, and also upped the reparations bill by an extra 1,200 talents. Um, so basically, Rome's really been quite predatory and quite nasty about this because Carthage you know, is defending its territory. It's still got rights to be on Corsica and Sardinia, but because it's supposed to not fight wars without Roman permission, it's technically in breach of the treaty. Um, and that's really how Rome manages to manipulate control the situation to, to, grab to grab control of, you know, the, the two other big islands in the Western Med. These... Um... This civil war that was occurring, who, who is the main writer or writers that scholars lean on to understand these events? Uh, it's, really, it's really Polybius, the um, second century Greek historian, uh, who's obviously writing later than the events, but, you know, not, not outrageously much later. It's about, it's about a century later, so it's kind of within sort of, you know, memory rather, rather than folktale. Um, because he, he, he actually has a, a really detailed account of this. Um, and if, I mean, it's, it's strange because this episode is, is actually not that widely known these days, but I, I discovered when I was pulling together material for this, this podcast uh, that in the 19th century, this was you know, an immensely famous episode in, 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 in ancient history. Um, uh, the French uh, writer Gustave Flaubert's novel Salambo is, is basically a retelling of this very closely based on Polybius. And it, it, it was a big thing in, I mean, obviously sort of orientalizing culture in the 19th century. Um, so even though it's sort of rather slipped below under the radar these days, it's, um, you know, thanks to Polybius, we didn't have a very detailed account. And it's, um, you know, quite a, obviously quite a difficult period in Carthaginian history. You mentioned uh, approximately 20,000 soldiers on the one, on the one side during the civil war is there any sense of how many uh soldiers there would have been on the carthaginian side uh not i don't think we've got numbers we do know that um you know because effectively they stripped out all its mercenaries and all its libyan conscripts um you know it was left with the core of the carthaginian army who were carthaginian citizens and uh, i don't think we have numbers for that so not, not that i've come across um, but it's it's obviously a much smaller force. Um, you know, they, they were quite heavily outnumbered, um, and and of course they've got this um, you know conflict at the at the top end of the command with Hanno and Hamilcar being being at odds with each other. So that's you know really 
you know, that, that political conflict uh, which was ongoing seems to have been a, been a big problem. And you think, you infer that um, Carthage was outnumbered, or the vice versa, just to clarify that. Yeah, I think, I think Carthage was probably, probably quite heavily outnumbered. Um, and one of the things that I think was quite revealing is pretty much the first thing Hamilcar does when he takes over again um, is, as general, is that he makes a marriage alliance with the Libyan royal, with the, with the, sorry, the um, Numidian royal family, uh, because he's obviously worried that the, the Numidians might change sides, and that, 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 that would have been probably a game changer. You mentioned uh, Hamilcar was reappointed uh, as military commander. So is there some evidence that he, for a while, wasn't military commander? Can you speak about that? Or was it just a case that the first war was complete, so he was no longer in that position? Can you elaborate on that comment a little bit? Yeah, yeah. I think he, he's, he's, he seems to have stood down um, in 241. Um, the... the Process of repatriating the troops back to North Africa uh, from Sicily. So it was was meant to be, you know, kind of where his command ended. Um, and uh, but so, so I think that there was a brief period where uh, Hanno seems 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 to seems to have been in charge. Um, the, the problem is that we don't really know a huge amount about Carthaginian politics and how things worked in Carthage at this period. So it's you know really all we know is. You know, what, what comes up in the narrative of the war. So it's, it's quite difficult to get a handle on what's, what's happening in the background. Um, okay, so the war, so the civil war ends. It sounds like there's a settle, settlement. So what, what, what happens next? So, so that was, uh, what year was it, 238 that it ended? Yeah, two, two, 238. And then in 237, you get um, Carthage being pushed out of Corsica and Sardinia by you know, by, by this action by the Romans who've decided that they, you know, the fact, the fact that they've sent troops to the islands to, um, you know, try and regain them from the, 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 the mercenaries who revolted is, is interpreted by Rome as probably slightly dubiously um, as an infringement of the treaty. So they get pushed out of two more islands. Um, they have to pay more money to Rome. Um, uh, and then after that, um, you know, basically Carthage then has to start rebuilding. Um, and Libya is obviously, you know, one of the key areas economically because it's, it's agriculturally very productive, so that has to get built up again. Um, you know, their, their trade's being disrupted, so that has to be re-established. Um, and this is where things get quite interesting because by this stage... Um, Hamilcar seems to have been re really established himself as a sort of main political player in in Carthage. He seems to manage to sideline Hanno, um, and he comes up with this plan uh, for a new Carthaginian empire in Spain. So it's a, it's a complete realignment and change of direction. Um, and the idea is that he persuades the Carthaginian. Senate, the Adiran, uh, to send him off to Spain as governor. Um, and uh, the idea is that um, the, old, the old Phoenician settlements, places like Gades, modern Cadiz, and uh, Malacca, which is now Malaga, uh, would be used as the basis to, to sort, of, uh, sort of gradually expand Carthaginian control in Spain. Um, and that, that would really um, 
you know, try and compensate for the loss of all this territory that they've they've lost on the, the Mediterranean islands. Um, and that really does seem to have been a sort of Barker family project, uh, because not only does Hamilcar go off himself as governor, uh, but he also takes his entire family with him. Um, and it becomes very much a sort of family thing. Um, uh, Hamilcar himself dies in uh, 229 or 228, not quite sure which. Uh, and he's succeeded by Hasdrubal, his son-in-law. Uh, and then when he's killed in 221, uh, Hannibal, uh, Hannibal's son then takes over. Um, so it's it's a, it's a real change of direction for Carthage, but it's also very much driven by this one one political uh, power, uh, family. So Hannibal, uh, Hamilcar's son. So how old would he have been when? Uh, when you mentioned he took took over, and was there an official position that he was given? Like, was it a military commander position? Was it uh, was it a, a, a governor position? What's known about that? Um, not a huge lot, unfortunately, um, uh, because we don't know a great deal about how Spain was organised in the the Carthaginian period. Um, what we do know about it is it's a mixture of these. Uh, Punic settlements down the coast, uh, which go way, way back into the archaic period. Um, and uh, the native Iberian and, and Celtic population, uh, which are probably uh, a mixture of Carthaginian dependents and, and allies at this stage. Um, but we don't know a great deal about how it was ruled. Um, Hamilcar seems to have been a sort of governor stroke general, military commander. Um, and presumably the Carthaginian Senate was responsible for sort of reconfirming his successors, but, you know, um, they seem to have been happy with the idea that, you know, you, you, recon you, you reconfirm, you know, the people who are there on the ground, uh, which, you know, was basically Hannibal's, uh, sort of Hamilcar's family. Um, uh, so basically it does seem to have been very much a family enterprise, but at the same time, we don't really know enough about how it was organised in uh, because we just don't have the sources for it um, or any detail about how it was ruled. Um, I mean, the two things that I, we do know is that um, mineral wealth is one of the drivers of this because Spain had a lot of a lot, a lot of mines uh, and those seem to have been state-owned by Carthage. Um, so there does seem to have been a certain amount of central control. Um, Carthage doesn't actually seem to have been a great founder of cities uh, in its own right, but we know it did establish a new city at Alicante, uh, and then um, in 227, uh, Hasdrubal refounds an Iberian settlement called Mastia as, as New Carthage, um, Cartagena. Um, uh, so, you know, there's a certain amount of you know, city building, but not, not a huge amount. Um, but one of the frustrating things is we don't really have that much detail about how, um, you know, the internal detail about how, how Spain was, was organised in this period. I'm, we mentioned, we talked about Cartagena in the last episode. Yeah, beautiful, yes, yeah, right, yeah, beautiful city. Yes. And yeah, I, I've never actually <laughs> been. Uh, it's something I'd really like to do. Yeah, yeah, it's a beautiful, uh, kind of, uh, older feeling down downtown but i've actually been to alicante you mentioned alicante i've been to alicante yeah. as, as well it's a wonderful city yeah yeah, yeah, mid yeah. I, don't, I don't know that area of spain at all i've been, been to madrid a couple of times but that's that's really all what year does 
uh, Hannibal then in the records uh, show up? What what year approximately? Um, well, he's he's sort of there's a there's a fa- there's a fa- famous um, anecdote which goes back to when he was really quite small because uh, it, it said that before his father left Carthage to take over the, the, the this enterprise in Spain, he, he he took Hannibal, who was then said to be about nine, uh, to the to the shrine of well the, the Greek sources say Zeus, but it's actually presumably the shrine of Baal, uh, the main shrine at Carthage, and made him swear an oath. Well, depending on which version you believe, it's never to be friends with the Romans or to be eternal enemies of the Romans. So, um, you know, he showed, he blips up briefly as a, as a, as a child before they leave. Uh, but where he shows up uh, in, um, you know, in a serious sense is that he's, uh, he, he's one of his father's officers in, uh, presumably in his late teens, early 20s, uh, in in Spain, uh, and then he's uh, one of his uh, brother's junior commanders, uh, sorry, brother-in-law's junior commanders. Uh, um, so I guess he's probably in his uh, late 20s, by uh, maybe early 30s, by the time he really takes over fully in, in 221. Okay, so let's, uh, 221, and that's getting close yeah. to 218, which is the yeah. uh, start of this the second Punic War. So the uh, so let's so what's known in those few years? Can you talk about leading up to the the next war and sort of the later period of this uh, in, in in between period uh, of of the wars? What's what's what, what's what's known? Um, well, we know that um, I mean Hasdrubal was obviously quite building up quite a a serious military presence in in Spain. Uh, even before, you know, during his uh, period in charge, uh, between 229 and 221, um, the sources say that he built a force of 60,000 infantry and 8,000 cavalry, which is quite substantial. Um, and that was further reinforced by Hannibal. Uh, so Carthage was clearly showing quite a lot of ambition in Spain, and it had also pu- pushed its territorial interests uh, quite far north. Um, and that seems to have started ringing alarm bells with Rome, uh, because in 226 to 25 BC, there was a new treaty signed between Rome and Carthage uh, called the Ebro Treaty. Um, and what that was really about was establishing a everywhere south of the river Ebro, uh, which is not far north of Valencia, uh, as Carthaginian territory. And anything north of that was a sort of Roman sphere of influence. Um, and the background to that seems to be that um, uh, Rome had been fighting a couple of wars of its own elsewhere in the Mediterranean. It fought a couple of wars with the Illyrians of the Dalmatian coast. Uh, but it had also been expanding in northern Italy, um, uh, which was at that stage to the Romans, it was Italy north of the River Po, was regarded as really part of Gaul. It's culturally Celtic. Um, and Rome had started to expand north of the Po and into that sort of area. So effectively, you've got two main powers which are both expanding north. Uh, and you can see where that's going. You know, they're heading towards an area where they're going to collide. Uh, so the Ebro Treaty really seems to be about um, demarcating that sphere of influence. Um, and uh, the other thing that it may well have been about is trying to stop the Carthaginians and the Gauls joining up 
uh, because the Romans are really nervous about the Gauls. Um, there, there was a very nasty episode in the, the early 4th century when the Gaul, a, 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 a gang of Gallic mercenaries in, invaded Italy and, and defeated the Roman army and sacked Rome in 390. Uh, and ever since then, Rome is scared stiff of Gauls. You know, they, they really are quite paranoid about them. Um, and one of the things that they really want to do is stop the Carthaginians and the Gauls trying to trying to kind of make some sort of join up between them uh, that could threaten, you know, the, the northern areas of Italy. Um, and the reason why that is the trigger for uh, the next war is that uh, a city called Saguntum, which is actually south of the Ebro, and quite a way south of the Ebro, um, was being besieged by Hannibal. And um, the Saguntines decide that they're going to appeal to Rome. Uh, and of course, the correct response, you know, by the treaty, by the under the Ebro Treaty of the Roman Senate would be, you know, no, certainly we're not, we can't come and protect you. Uh, but instead, they decided to declare the, the Saguntines to be um, Amici Popoli Romani, friends of the Roman people, and therefore under Roman protection. Um, uh, but Hannibal went ahead and sacked the city anyway. Um, and the upshot of that was that the Romans sort of said, this is terrible, you know, they've, you know, Hannibal's broken the treaty. And in fact, in fact he hadn't, strictly speaking, because Saguntum was south of, south of the demarcation line. Um, but the Romans then complained to Carthage. Carthage said that he was acting without government authority, that it was a sort of private initiative on Hannibal's part. Um, uh, but Rome was demanding that Hannibal should be disciplined and handed over to them. And of course, Carthage isn't going to do that. Uh, so that, that's, that's really the point at which Rome declares war. Um, so it really is a sort of very sort of murky episode. I mean, we don't really know anything about why Hannibal was besieging Saguntum or what he was up to. Uh, but what we do know is that it was in the area of Spain where he was entitled, fully entitled to this treaty to besiege and Rome shouldn't have been meddling. Um, um, you know, so it, it seems that Rome is actually trying to be quite aggressive at this point. What what year then does the Second War start, and is it is it clear to scholars um, who who declares war on who? I won't ask it as a uh, you know as a presumptive question, but what year, and then who 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 is the party that declares war? Um, it's um, 218, and it's um, it's really Rome that declares war because the, the sequence of events is that Saguntum appeals for help to Rome. Rome says yes, but then doesn't send any troops. Um, uh, and then Hannibal sacks the city. Uh, and, and at that point, Rome says, you know, Hannibal has, Hannibal has attacked a Roman, you know, somebody who's under Roman protection. This is terrible and goes and complains to Carthage and says we want him handed over because he's done this terrible thing to, 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 to somebody who's under our protection. Um, and Carthage says no. <laughs> so at that point, Rome declares war. Uh, so it, it does seem to be, you know, it seems, it seems to be a certain amount of provocation on both sides. Um, and it, interestingly, Polybius, uh, when he's sort of picking the bones out of this, uh, draws quite a strong distinction between what he regards as the fundamental cause of the war, uh, which is an abiding hostility for the, uh, by the Barker family for, towards Rome, um, and the, the actual sort of casus belli, if you like, the, the actual incident that, that triggers the conflict, uh, which is the 
you know, the, the sack of Sagunton, uh, which by that stage is, is formally under Roman protection. In this period between the, the, the first two wars, is there anything um, really important that you think we haven't covered that you want to make sure, make sure is shared before we wrap up? Um, I think the, uh, I mean, one of the things that I think is worth perhaps throwing into the mix is that um, Rome, effectively, for a lot of a large chunk of the two twenties, is really quite distracted because it's got these com- other conflicts going on in northern Italy, uh, and also on the in in Dalmatia, it's it's starting to um, uh, push into Illyria um, on you know, the, the um, Dalmatian coast. Um, so Rome, in a sense, is, you know, it's taken its eye on, off Carthage for a while. Uh, but obviously something happens at, in the late 220s, um, uh, you know, somewhere between 221 and 219, to, to really re-engage Rome within with, with what Carthage is doing. Um, and it, it does seem to be that, that problem of the fact that Rome is expanding in northern Italy and, and really trying really trying to protect the northern border of Italy by, by seizing control of the, of the, of the Celtic territories of, of the north. Um, that see, seem, seems to be one of, one, of, one of the issues because, as I said, Rome is really nervous about Gauls and it's really nervous about the idea that Carthage might make common cause with the Gauls and that, that would put Rome in a really big, big problem. Um, uh, so, you know, although in some ways Rome is quite aggressive at the point where war breaks out again, um, you know, there is a background to this that Rome is really sort of nervous about its own security, um, you know, at least as far as sort of Gallic invasions are concerned. Um, I mean, there, there was one that was that seemed, that seemed to be building up in 226. And just as a, an, an illustration of just how nervous Rome was, uh, about this, it actually put out a call to the whole of Italy, um, to all, all its allies and colonies in Italy, uh, demanding to know how many men, you know, what if they if they if they triggered a full military levy of the entire manpower of the Italian peninsula, what you know, what figure could they come up with? Um, you know, so clearly the Senate was thinking that it might need that sort of manpower. Um, it, it didn't happen, uh, fortunately, but it didn't come to that. Uh, but it does just give an idea of just how nervous. Rome is starting to feel about that sort of area of the, the world. If you want to come back on the show sometime, Catherine, we'll cover the next war. Right. Okay, that would be great. I, I, I have to say that the, the Second Punic War is very much more my, 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 my comfort zone because one of the things that I work on is, 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 is Italy in that period. So, you yeah, that would be great. You did great. I enjoyed this um, conversation, Catherine, and learn more good. about this uh, period in history. Thank you for coming on the show. Okay, great. It's good to be back. Thank you. So again, everybody, the couple books that I mentioned at the start of the episode that Dr. Lomas wrote as examples, The the Rise of Rome, 1000 BC to 264 BC, and Rome in the Western Greeks, 350 BC to AD 200, Conquest and Acculturation in Southern Italy. I'll drop links to both the books in the show notes on the IthacaBound.com's associated subpage to this episode. Catherine and everybody listening, as always, wishing a marvelous journey. Bye for now. Thank you. 
Hey again, if you enjoyed today's episode, please subscribe to the podcast and I wish you a bountiful rest of your day. Bye for now.